welcome to Talking Scared. Let's go tiptoeing together through another hour of creepy conversation. This week we're speaking to the author of one of the publishing phenomena of 2020. It's Silvia Moreno-Garcia, author of Mexican Gothic. If you've got any awareness of Gothic or horror writing, then you'll definitely have seen the cover of Mexican Gothic. The book was everywhere this summer, and deservedly so. It's a lush, broiling, saturated take on the traditional Gothic novel, but filtered through a perspective that the tradition hasn't really been open to until now. We've thrown localising adjectives at Gothic for decades. American Gothic, Australian Gothic, Irish Gothic, whatever you can think of. But Mexican Gothic is something new. The book was published in June by Del Rey in the US and Joel Fletcher Books here in the UK. It's ridden high on the bestseller lists. It's entered cultural conversation. It's already been optioned for a TV adaptation. And it really seems to have scratched an itch that we didn't know we had. Sylvia and I talk about the need for wider representation in horror. The wonders of Mexican horror movies and why not every Mexican book has to mention the Day of the Dead. Mexican Gothic is ripe for discussion. Just don't dare call it a romance. So, hi Sylvia, and welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for taking the time to speak to us. I'm especially grateful for your time, considering how busy your kind of publicity machine has been the last few months. Everywhere I look, there's kind of an interview with you or a thought piece on your book. And, and Mexican Gothic seems to have really hit the pop cultural bullseye this year. Um, for those few who haven't read it yet, could you give us a brief intro or summary of the novel? Uh, yeah, well, like it's what it says in the tin. It's a gothic novel set in Mexico. And I liked a quote from The Guardian that said, It's Lovecraft meets the Brontes in Latin America. And after a slow burn start, Mexican Gothic gets seriously weird. It, it it does get very weird. It went in directions I, I didn't expect at all. So could you give us a brief synopsis just so that people know kind of like the, the broad plot points of what we're talking about? What, what, where do we start when we when we meet Naomi or um, at the start of the novel? Uh, our protagonist is Noemi Tabuada. She is a socialite in 1950s Mexico. She comes from well-to-do family, uh, an industrial kind of wealthy family. And her cousin, Catalina, was married a few months before to an Englishman, and they went to live in the countryside in Mexico. And now they have received a disturbing letter from her where she kind of rambles on, talks about she might be being poisoned, there's things in the walls, there's ghosts. And so Noemi's father tasks her with going over to this isolated town and the isolated house where the cousin is living and finding out if everything is okay. And so Noemi takes a train, heads into the mountain, and ends up at High Place, which is this house up in, you know, in the middle of nowhere where her cousin is living with his family and they are an odd lot and there are strange things afoot. Okay, so broad question, first of all. And as I always like to say on this show, this is a podcast for the people who want to know the story behind the story. So 
in the broadest sense, where did your original idea for the novel come from? What was the spark of inspiration? Well, there's a bunch of things. Obviously, the gothic novel as a whole genre with very distinctive elements appealed to me. But the town that I'm referencing in this novel is based on a real town. So there's a place called Real del Monte. It's located in central Mexico. It's up high in the mountains. It can get quite chilly and also quite rainy there, especially at certain times of the year. And this town was a mining town, a silver mining town, which was famously mined by the British. And it was, it was a British town. It's why it's nicknamed Little Cornwall. It has its very own English cemetery, which is the thing that directly inspired this novel. Because when I went there many years ago and I walked into the cemetery, it was like walking into a hammer film. Right. Well, that's interesting because one of the things I find most striking about the novel, and I didn't realize it was that High Place was based on a real on a real location. One of the things I find most striking is kind of the the, the commentary on colonialism, maybe the wrong word, but the fact that this is it's a British family. They don't speak Spanish. It's a British house that's been transplanted in its entirety. And I love those little details like the globe in the library where all the country names are out of date or the fact that they've even brought British earth with them from the homeland. Is, is there that kind of post-colonial trace in Mexico? And is that something you wanted to reference specifically in the novel? Yes, I think uh, most people don't know a, lo- a lot about Mexico. And if they know anything, it's uh, that it was conquered by the Spanish and then the Spanish left. and that's kind of it. So the thing with colonialism is that people don't just pick up their bags one day and they leave with a nice thank you, goodbye, it was great hanging around. That's the first thing. It's not easy to extricate yourself from the machinery of colonialism and from the results of colonialism. But then the other thing is that Mexico was not just receiving one wave of colonialism. It was receiving multiple ones. So the British were there, as I said, in Rio del Monte and in other parts of the country, specifically in the south mainly, where they were trying to basically carve out a piece of Mexico away from Mexico, or well, from the Spanish crown at that at a certain point in time, and then from Mexico. Uh, the French were there. We had a French, several uh, conflicts with the French, and we had a French empire in Mexico for a brief time period. Americans were there. We had a Mexican-American war. And then after that, after you move into the 20th century, we have kind of a neocolonization happening, especially with mining resources and petroleum resources and companies just kind of swooping in and still using labor and people and resources as they see fit. So it's just, it's one thing that most people don't think about. They think that colonialism is a neat, nice story that wraps up and has a very specific end but that's not the truth yeah i was quite taken aback by the the idea of of, of the british colonial influence in mexico because I, I i thought mexico may have been one of the few places in the world where we didn't go and screw things up you know we we, we have our our dark past and I, I had no idea that there was that there was that trace in in mexico in that way um so it was quite interesting to see the juxtaposition of of kind of british gothic and Mexican setting and, and Mexican culture. Uh, and I wondered whether 
this is a bit of a, a bit of a you know deep question, I suppose. But I wonder whether there's a meta element to the story, whether you know the the, the English Gothic tradition, so to speak, is, is itself a bit of a colonizing force, kind of devouring the the possible Mexican tradition. Is is that something? Am I seeing ghosts there? Or is that something you were trying to play with? Well, I was trying to play with it in a not exactly in that sense, but in the sense that um, Noemi Tawada references Gothic literature several times. She understands Gothic literature, but she understands kind of romantic Gothic literature. And that's kind of what Catalina was going for. She was into that aesthetic. She liked Wuthering Heights. She, you know, probably liked things like Jane Eyre, that sort of thing. Because there's two Gothic aesthetics, the female Gothic and the male Gothic. And the male Gothic is kind of the violent supernatural one. And the female Gothic is what people call the non-supernatural, the non-violent one, these more romantic plots. So Noemi is, and, and Catalina were, I guess they, they went into the, they thought they were going into the wrong subcategory. Uh, Catalina certainly thought she was going into this kind of moody, romantic, gothic tale and wound up in this kind of really shitty old house with this very weird family. Noemi comes in and she's much more, I guess, aware. She comes in and she's like, what the hell is this? And this doesn't look at all like, you know, what, what my cousin was talking about. There's something that's, you know, kind of like the meta thing that is going on. But at another level, I... One of the things that inspired me, like I said, the, the big body of literature called Gothic is what inspired me to write this book. But one of the things that inspired me within that popular culture category were the films of Carlos Enrique Tabuada, who was a Mexican filmmaker who made four Gothic films in the 1960s and 1970s. And I really liked their aesthetic and what he was doing with that. And I like Carlos Enrique Tabuada's films specifically because they go against what you expect of Mexico. When you think about horror in Mexico, the only thing that people think about are the campy movies of El Santo, where there's a wrestler and he's fighting these mummies and it's all very cheap and very cheesy. And that is kind of the image that we, that, that they have of us. And there's like nothing else there and Carlos Enrique Tabuada brings a completely different aesthetic into the mix. He's playing with other kinds of elements and he is a Mexican filmmaker, not very well known uh, nowadays, especially, but people just, they tend to be blind to the particularities of a culture. So when they expect something to be Mexican, they expect Coco or Frida Kahlo and, and the aesthetic of Carlos Enrique Tabuada doesn't fit into it. And I wanted to do something that really didn't fit into people's preconceived notions that kind of played with this idea of, you know, what is Mexican, what is Gothic at, at the same time, because we are exoticized and restrained in, in the way that we are represented so often. And it is very frustrating, for example, uh, to always, people only allow us to tell immigrant pain stories or magic realism stories, maybe. And that's the only two categories that we are allowed to occupy. And so when I saw growing up this thing, these Mexican Gothic films that didn't look anything like what people expect of us, it was just this great kind of 
visual and aesthetic fodder that I then was thinking about while I was writing this. It's interesting you say this because obviously with my British-American mindset, the first film I thought about was Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak in that I see the house and the lush details you give very, is very reminiscent of Crimson Peak. Do you think Crimson Peak is, and, and that tradition is also inspired by the, the, the Mexican Gothic films you're talking about? Yes, I, I believe uh, Guillermo del Toro wouldn't exist with Carlos Enrique Tawada. And I think a lot of people, when they read my book, they reference Guillermo del Toro. But obviously, I was not referencing him. I was referencing, like I said, kind of like the forefather of well, hopefully we can get a few more people watching those movies because they're actually, I was looking and they're actually on, his entire back catalogue is on Mubi, the uh, streaming channel at the moment. So you can check them out there. So, you, but you've got right to the heart of the matter with this stuff about expectations and restrictions. But some critics have levelled the charge that the book somehow isn't Mexican enough. And I've seen you commenting on that on Twitter quite a bit. Can you expand on your whole reaction to that kind of perspective? I think that that is exactly the colonizing aesthetic that people have and that we need to fight against. So one example is when people say something like, this book was not like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude, therefore it's bad. And it turns out that they've only read 100 Years of Solitude and nothing else in the literary canon of Latin America. How can you make an opinion if you have only read one thing? It would be if I said, this book is not like The Great Gatsby, you know, a new American novel, therefore it's bad. Judging the whole of a culture of a canon by one single book and coming in like that, thinking that you know everything is extremely harmful to underrepresented authors, underrepresented cultures. And it's not that you can't come into a subject without knowing, but you have to come in in a position of saying, I have only read 100 Years of Solitude, therefore I am not familiar with this type of literature, I'm not sure where this fits, and this is what I think about it. But people come from that other place that dismissive place, that place of, yes, neocolonization happening as they speak. You know, when people expect books to only fulfill one aesthetic purpose, it is ridiculous. They want us, for example, to only be magic realist authors, or like I said, only express stories of immigrant suffering, and nothing else is valid. They want us to all write the same way, Include every seven words, put a word in italics. You know, I read Madame Bovary, which is considered the epitome of French literature, you know, the pinnacle, certainly the mother of all novels. Every seven words in my translated copy of Madame Bovary into Spanish, there wasn't a word in italics in French to let me know that this was a French book. Madame Bovary did not include the Eiffel Tower or croissants, and yet it is French literature. Why is it that when we go into other cultures, then we expect them to come every seven words with a word in italic? We don't expect it of Dostoevsky. We certainly don't expect it 
of British and American novels when they are translated into Spanish. The Great Gatsby did not come with lines in English when I was reading it in Spanish and it was translated. It was just great literature. When I read The Great Gatsby, it didn't include the 4th of July as a holiday celebration. Yet when I write, I can get dismissive comments and emails from people telling me that I did not include the Day of the Dead in my novel. Well, my novel takes place in September. The Day of the Dead is actually two days in November. It's like expecting a book set in the United States in February to have Thanksgiving and people are running around with turkey feathers. That is the kind of neocolonization that writers of color suffer from. And I say suffer from because not only are we then, you know, maybe reviewed poorly or we get bizarre comments from people that are in our inboxes or even, quite frankly, racist comments in our inboxes, but then the publishing industry doesn't want to publish us because you have to fall into this very neat, small niche of exotic enough or not exotic enough. If you're not exotic enough, then, then that's also a problem. But if you're too exotic, if you're too unlike what we expect, that's also not good. And so it's a strange tightrope act that other authors don't have to deal with. That's a great answer. Yeah, it, it feels to me that there is this kind of very unfair pressure for people writing genre fiction from a different cultural perspective to somehow either kind of fit in with the genre or to be a spokesperson for your entire culture. And is, is that something that you felt like you need to be, you know, you are now the Mexican horror writer? Is that a, a pressure and a burden that you feel? Publishing has these weird, what I call Highlander moments, you know, where there can be only one, like in that old 1980s movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, yes, uh, what happens is that the industry anoints one person. It doesn't have to be, you know, me. It could be, you know, anybody else, a black writer or an Asian writer. And they become the black writer, the Asian writer, the Latin American writer, or even the one person of color that speaks for everybody, right? So one black writer representing all of us, even though we have nothing in common. I don't have much in common with an African-American writer. To be honest with you, we come from different places or with a Singaporean writer, and yet you sometimes get a person from that place representing globally all of the people of color. And the industry seems to think, okay, yes, we did a great job. You know, we've got the one brown person. Now we don't have to do anything else. So yes, this is, this is very, um, very usual. And I think the problem is how people... For example, right now, I'm, I'm getting a lot of invitations to speak at things and, and, and things like that. And before I got zero. So you go from zero to everything, right? But are they inviting other authors of color? Or am I the only person that now gets to be the bean and the rice, right? And that is frijol and el arroz, you know, like the one brown person. And then it's like, are people really engaging in, I would say, thinking diversely? Or have they just found their token minority that they can parade around? And organizations really need to think about that, especially when you're talking about conferences and lineups. It, you know, it, it becomes an important question. It's like, am I going to be the only person of color at your event? 
is it going to be that kind of story? Because that is very uncomfortable, like, to be, to be honest with you, to be representing all of diversity, you know, as, as, at a conference, at an event, that, that is just crazy. And yet it's what has been traditionally the way things have happened. So yes, the industry tends to anoint one, one person that they see as important and then forget about everything else. And they also tend to forget about previous literary uh, production too. So it doesn't matter if there were like 10 black writers before this one black writer hit it big. We're going to just erase them all and just focus on this one person and write articles where we're pretending that nobody existed before this person, right? Um, it's a very, uh, it's a very strange so, sort of dance, and I, I dislike it immensely. Um, if you're talking about something like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, obviously there were a lot of people that have written stuff at the same time that I have done it, and people who have done it before. It's, it's not a question of like this is the only person of color that has ever than this thing and yet sometimes that is what it what it becomes and so organizations libraries festivals that kind of stuff need to be very careful with how they frame these kinds of situations so that you don't end up with a highlander effect but obviously also publishing companies need to look at what they're acquiring and who they have and to take a concerned effort and be like oh do we only have one writer of color signed up and 50 that are, that are white? What is going on there? What are we doing that has created this, you know, very big imbalance? And so you have to be willing to look in and do some of that work. And often what happens is that people don't and they just say, well, it just happened. Well, it doesn't just happen. You don't end up with such a big imbalance because it just happened. There was probably some internal bias, something going on in there that generated this kind of situation, which is understandable. You know, we are all humans. We all make mistakes. Sometimes we don't realize our bias. That's why they are unintentional. But if you don't look at it, it's not going to correct itself, right? It's, it's not just going to magically, you know, you're going to get full diversity and uh, things are going to be wonderful. You need to really look at it. And Sometimes there is definitely an unwillingness to look at it, to take this time to reflect on what you're doing. Yeah, that that resonates a lot with me um, as the as a person putting this podcast together. Because in my tiny little way, I'm I'm trying to celebrate, you know, the, the diversity of of horror writing that's out there. And and I found, I mean, I've had to confront my own, I wouldn't say bias, but my own narrow horizons in th- in putting together a list of authors that I wanted to talk to. I suddenly realized that I read 80% white British or American male authors. And it made me realize how narrow my reading is. So I tried to extend it. It's it's exactly what you say. It's like I try and find diverse cultural voices. And yet I end up just coming up again and again against the the, the list that contains one African-American voice, one Latina voice, one, um, you know, Southeast Asian author. And it's like I want to get beyond that into the the deeper layers of of horror writing in those in those cultures, but it, it's quite difficult because th- this one person is almost used to, used as a barrier. So yeah, everything you said there kind of resonates with with me very much, um, and I, and I I just hope that I can in my own tiny little way can try and find some more disparate diverse voices. 
Back to the book, though. The title is interesting in itself because by calling it Mexican Gothic, that reads very much like a statement of intent. What was your thinking behind the choice of the title? It was a working title. I originally thought I was going oh, really? to change it. Yeah, I, I wanted to do a more poetic title inspired by the films of Tawada and some of the titles of mm. yellow films of the 1970s, such as The, Girl, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage. So it was a working title, but then I ended up liking it quite a bit because I thought it actually encapsulated everything that I was trying to do. And, you know, I picked it for, for several reasons. Uh, it was pithy, it sounded good, and et cetera, et cetera. But the other reason why I picked it was that in a perverse way, I had been told uh, of a previous book that I wanted to sell that, you know, it would never sell because it was set in Mexico. So then I thought, ha ha, I'm just going to put it out there that this is Mexican. And then because also because of the magic realism thing, because I kept seeing people attempting to classify my work and the work of other Latin American writers as Mexican, uh, as, as magic realism, if, if we were Mexican or Latin American, uh, trying to put us in this narrow space. So I thought, I'm going to call it Mexican Gothic. And there's no way then you can call it magic realism, can you? It's, it's right there in your face. I'm, I mean, I'm sure people are trying to call it magic realism somewhere, but it's much harder now. And my desire to have this classified as horror is precisely because I, I know the industry. I know about comp copies, which are comparative titles, and how important they are when editors are making acquisition decisions. And when you don't have a lot of comp titles for people of color, then they can reject you very easily because they say there's nothing like this on the market, right? So if, if there's no horror by a person of color, then they say there's no comp titles like this, then we're not gonna, we're not gonna buy it, it's not gonna sell, you know, go away. And so I, I want my book to be called horror because if it does anything at all, you know, I hope it serves as a comp title for other people that yeah. they can now look and point and say, this is horror. It's not magic realism. And it did okay. Therefore, we're going to take a chance with this other thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I've, I've been, obviously, I follow you on Twitter and I've seen you kind of getting quite irritated recently by people miscategorizing your book as romance or a, a kind of young adult novel. And that answers the question of why you find it so irritating when that happens. It closes doors. It, it closes yeah. doors for other people. I mean, it causes problems for me because from a, a customer perspective, like my friend took a photo of a library display where they put my book in the romance section. Romance is especially a category where there is a promise to the reader, right? There's a certain formula in it, a happy ending, you know, and, and when I say formula, this is not bad. This is just the reader's expectations. If you put something that is not a romance in the romance section, you know, like if, if you put, you know, Frankenstein in the romance section, let's say nobody has read Frankenstein. It's, it's a new book. Mary Shelley's birthday just came up. Uh, but let's say you put it in the romance section and some unwary person grabs it and reads it. They're going to be horrified you know they're gonna hate it it's not it's gonna be nothing like what they wanted 
you know, they're going to rightfully going to hate it. And so you're just, you're toying with people's expectations. You're making it really hard for the writer because that person is not going to hate you and, and, and all that kind of stuff. You're doing that disservice. But then at an industry level, if you classify me as, as romance, as young adult, you are, you know, you are possibly closing the doors to other people. Because if I get put in this other category and then somebody comes down the road and they have a horror book, but my book is magic realism, then they're going to have a hard time. So yeah, like it's, it's really important that people, you know, classify this the way that it was classified and it has its basic code. It is a horror novel. Don't put it in, in the romance section. Don't put it in the young adult section. Don't do, you know, a disservice to other writers because, you know, I'm already selling books. I mean, it's, it's doing okay. I don't have a problem. But down the road, when they're doing those kind of acquisition decisions and all that kind of stuff, that's going to matter. It's going to matter a lot for somebody who doesn't have the kind of resources that I have now. So please help them out. Don't put it in the romance section and certainly don't put it in the young adult one. It's an adult horror novel. I mean, we can quibble about, is it a gothic novel versus a horror novel yeah i mean you can also put it in a gothic section if you have a gothic section though most libraries don't have a specific gothic section for their books they're much more generalized but yeah you could say it's gothic it's horror even you know you could even go on a limb and say it's 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 a bit of suspense supernatural suspense sort of thing but it's definitely not a romance and it's definitely not a young adult and and one of the problems with people of color with writers of color is that they have all been lumped in that young adult category. That's where you can find the diversity. But it's almost like, okay, so you now get diversity when you're a teenager, and then when you get to adult, <laughs> nothing, right? You know, like, you know, yeah. goodbye, right? So, so, you, so, so you can think about that young reader where they have actually had now some diverse readers. And then they reach the age of 19 or whatever, they're out in the world, they're in university, and then there's a lot less diversity, right? So now what are they going to read? It's, it's really frustrating. And so we can't be doing that kind of stuff because we are doing a disservice to people, to readers, and also to writers. No, if everybody gets lumped in a single category, that is, goes against all the principles of bi biodiversity. You know, that is not good. We can't all exist in just one single category. And that right now in English language publishing is young adult for a lot of people of color. I didn't know that. I didn't know that young adult was that kind of kind of net that caught people. I, I had no idea. Basically, all those all those caveats and 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 hurdles aside, the novel has done phenomenally well. I mean, was I right that it it was kind of up towards the top of the LA bestseller chart, LA, um, LA Times bestsellers chart yesterday? I think I saw on on your Twitter. But it's done really really well. It seems to be just omnipresent in in horror circles at the moment. Are you surprised by the success? And, and why do you think it's had the success that it has, apart from it being great? Yeah, I've had, this is my sixth novel. Um, so I've had five before. So it's been, it's been a while. I think some people think yeah. I'm a debut author, but they just haven't seen the other, the other five ones that I wrote. I think one problem is that writers are not allowed a chance to mature nowadays. We used to have that, category which was called the mid-list writer right so it was this yeah. category where you're not were not a bestseller you were not 
also just new and off the ground you were selling but but not you know like big big guns and and a lot of companies used to have a bunch of mid-list authors um, people who were not huge successes but were still producing and, and writing books in the past few years we have seen an industry move towards the primacy of the debut authors debut authors get you know a lot of money or a lot of attention and then if you don't do well with your first one you're dropped there is no desire to nurture the author to see them through several books i really am a mid-list writer that finally had a chance to have a bigger commercial moment but it was you know because i did five books and then this sixth one was like it won the lottery right it's not i don't think that my other books were bad or terrible it was just the factors were not there at the time with the i had different publishing imprints it was a different year it was a different genre kind of situation those kind of factors were all different in each one of my releases and now i did quite well with this one it really was for a while a bit of a struggle because of the expectations of the industry that if you're not a success right off the bat we don't want you and it's even worse when you're a writer of color you don't get to change your name or or get a chance at the bat again i i was very lucky that i actually did was able to get another deal uh, but for a while there things things were dicey and my my previous novel right before Mexican Gothic, which is a crime novel called Untamed Shore, we ended up going with this really nice crime publisher, but they're, they're a very small company. It was a printing of 2,000 hardcover copies for that novel, and I think I got an advance of $500 for that one. So very small advance, very small printing. And for Mexican Gothic, we are on 100,000 books printed so far. So that's a big difference. And that was just because nobody else wanted me at that point, right? So we went with this small company that, that really liked me and that seemed to be interested in diversity. But it was because all the big guys were like, kind of like, eh, you know. But that was just, you know, the, the fact that the midlist writer doesn't have many chances nowadays. It's so much harder to remain a midlist writer, so much harder as, as a writer of color. And the emphasis on work that is pristine and ready to print is frankly unnerving. It's a situation where I've had, where I have submitted manuscripts and, and editors have said, well, we're not going to offer on it because it needs some rewrites. And I'm like, I can do rewrites. I'm actually really good at rewriting. That's where I come alive. And, and they, they're not offering because of that. And I'm not talking about a manuscript that is, you know, horribly deformed, but it just needs a little bit of work you know like maybe they want to change the ending or something like that and they'll be like no no we're just not going to offer so and it used to be that that would have been not a problem right a few you know a few decades ago like oh it needs rewrites yeah sure why not uh, that's part of the editorial relate it used to be part of the relationship that an, of the work that an editor did right was polished the manuscript and nowadays that's no longer the the expectation it better come polished as a diamond that is especially true when you're a writer of color when you're white and i've seen it then you might get oh yeah yeah we'll do some rewrites you'll get a chance to be a midless writer we'll change your name you'll have another chance of the bat when you're a writer of color my friend you're in a lot of trouble you don't get that many chances at the bat i i said i'm very lucky 
to be here right now because I almost wasn't. Well, having read the book, I mean, I'm delighted you are. But yeah, that is that is kind of quite a sobering appraisal of the market. As I've been kind of drip feeding into conversations with each subsequent subsequent guest, I'm basically spending the next six months trying to boss out my first novel. I keep getting really sobering advice about the state of the market currently. So yeah, it's becoming a much more daunting task, um, interview by interview. Saying that, um, next year sees a reissue of your vampire novel, Certain Dark Things. So am I right in thinking that was originally published in 2016? That is correct, yes. I've read a lot of reviews. I haven't read the novel, I apologise, but I've read a lot of reviews. And it's got almost universal acclaim. But I'm guessing off the back of Mexican Gothic, a lot more people will pick up and see and be aware of certain dark things. But what can you tell us to whet our appetite for your take on the vampire? Yes, it came out in 2016 and it became, uh, it went out of print really quickly. And it became the book that people emailed me about every week trying to find it. And uh, nowadays it goes for over $100 on eBay if you can find it. So it quickly became this rare cult object. It's set in an alternate reality in which Mexico City is a no vampire zone and the rest of the country is a vampire zone. There's vampires, obviously. It follows this uh, young vampire woman who has sneaked into Mexico City because she's on the run from these basically Vibo vampire gang. She meets this teenage garbage collector who lives in the streets of Mexico City, and they are trying to figure a way to basically get away from the bad guys. It's a noir, definitely. I call it a neon neon noir, and it's very gritty. It has multiple points of view going on, going back and forth. And the vampire is part of several vampire species. And she is a descendant of basically Aztec priests, priestesses. And they are vampires that are not, there's no vampires that are made in my, in my novel. Everybody is born. So there's no biting anybody. You become a vampire, that sort of thing. So her lineage is from these ancient vampires and they are inspired by a type of blood-sucking witch from mexican folklore that i use for that and so she has these avian elements because these witches fly at night in, in folklore so there's a lot of that um, there's a lot of violence my friend Lavitidar said that it should have been called narcula it's kind of a quentin tarantino meets dracula sort of sort of situation and yes, definitely a noir. So that should be out May from Tor Nightfire. And then Tor will be releasing the re-releasing The Beautiful Ones, which is a completely different book that also went out of print. And that one is a novel of manners of romantic fantasy. So next year is a big year for you then? Uh, next year I'll have, yeah, three or four titles out. So, Is there anything new um, that you're working on? Well, the, um, I should be doing rewrites pretty soon uh, for my crime novel, my second crime novel, another standalone. And this one is called A Dangerous Eagerness. It'll be out from Penguin Random House in July, if I'm not mistaken. It's set in 1971 in Mexico City. 
at the beginning of what we call the dirty war. It follows this incident where student protesters were massacred by the Mexican government. Right after that incident happens, this young student goes missing and a kleptomaniac secretary and this thug who works for the government are both on her trail. So it's, again, it's a noir. It's, it's a crime novel, 1971, kind of a throwback to Three Days of the Condor, that sort of aesthetic, obviously set in Mexico. I'm really interested in this witch you just mentioned that inspired the uh, the vampires because you grew up in Mexico and then you moved to British Columbia as an adult. Is that right? Yes. So when you were young, what was it like growing up in Mexico? Were you exposed to much the kind of British American horror tradition or is there a bespoke Latin American or, or specifically Mexican tradition of that kind of thing? And is it quite folkloric? What's it like? I grew up with my great grandmother telling me stories of her childhood and her youth. And she had a lot of folklore that she shared with me. But at the same time, yes, English language media has always a big important part in in other countries, including in Latin America and in Mexico, of course. We and that's what some people don't understand. That's why sometimes they expect us to be completely different and exotic without realizing that we also watch Ghostbusters, right? (laughs) So they expect something they expect us to live in a completely alien way, yet we were consuming your same media, listening to your same songs, playing video games, you know. So I played Donkey Kong at the arcade. And, uh, and Pac-Man and all that stuff. And I went to the movies. I watched Arnold Schwarzenegger and all those guys who were big in the 80s, watched the TV shows, you know, Knight Rider. Uh, it was called something else and it was dubbed in Spanish, but we sat down and we watched Knight Rider at night, you know, in the, in the family. And, and so certainly I think that is one of the things that people expect us to be completely kind of different. But nowadays, I mean, now with globalization, especially when you can watch everything at the same time that everybody is is watching that is that is not the case of, at all so yes i was exposed to horror movies and pop culture and all that kind of stuff but there was also the local production that most people don't know about so i wrote an article about uh, the heyday of mexican horror comic books and i wrote it for it's about tour uh, the tour blog and so it talks about the 1960s and going into the 1970s when there was a huge comic book production in Mexico and there was this mini niche of horror comic books and what they looked like and how they were different from the American ones because we didn't, we didn't have the censorship that the Americans kind of had. So they were a lot racier and sexier and, and they were for adults and, and the formats were different. The paper that they were printed on was very cheap and they look, a lot of the ones that I have, have kind of this brown tint to the page just because of the inks and the the paper that was used. Very fragile and some of them very, very tiny formats. So that's, you know, an example of local production where it doesn't look like what was being experienced in the United States. But at the same time, that local production was inspired by what was going on there. They were trying to do stuff like the equivalent of Tales from the Crypt, but without, you know, without having to pay any royalties, I guess. And so that's going on, and, and then it's diverging and, and becoming a little bit different. So that's, that. yeah, that is kind of the experience, is you have some stuff that is going on 
at the local level, maybe not as much as in wealthier nations where you can have a lot of TV shows that are, you know, supernatural sci-fi and that kind of stuff. But you do have some movies like Tabuada's movies that are happening in, in that kind of space. And then you have all the foreign stuff that you're watching. So it's a mix of everything. It's a very liminal kind of kind of situation. And again, that's the problem when people come assuming that our experiences have to be completely different and completely exotic in, in a way that has nothing to do with reality, that that's when you get the, this, this problem where people say, well, it's not Mexican. And then my question is, well, I was on the ground and I know what Mexican is like, and it's probably not what you imagine. I think that sums it up, really. The, the thing I loved about the book was the way, it, for me, it really balances very well, to my eyes, the exotic with the, the recognisable. And it's recognisable things both in terms of generic tropes and in terms of language and, and culture. I have this pet theory about contemporary female Gothic. I'm interested in your thoughts. Because I think you're part of it. So I think there's this tradition that's been going for like 250 years that started with Anne Radcliffe. The Brontes basically took Anne Radcliffe and rewrote it for their society. And then after De Maurier and Rebecca rewrote Jane Eyre for her social context. It feels to me like that's happening again with a number of books, but Mexican Gothic in particular being at the vanguard. It feels like Mexican Gothic is the next step in that ongoing tradition. So two questions. One, do you agree with that in any way? And secondly, if you do agree, what did you want to shake up? What was the thing that you wanted to add to that evolution? Well, the fun thing about Gothic literature is that it's kind of, um, it is the mother of other types of literature. If you're looking at it as, a, as an evolutionary tree, you have horror branching off at one side, once you reach your Draculas and that sort of aesthetic. And then it branches onto the other side and you have contemporary romance novels. And then there's kind of like this other branch that develops and you get what I would call nowadays domestic suspense novels. I think they are the modern expression of the novel, of, of the Gothic novel or domestic suspense novels, such as The Girl on the Train or The Woman in the Window, that, that sort of stuff. They have some genetic, some genetic material from, from Gothic novels. So the, the reason why they're, why gothic novels are fun is because of that because they have a lot of the building blocks of our modern literature and they have a lot of tropes you see things that we can recognize i mean that can be good and that can be bad but but you can do a lot when you can recognize a trope because if, if you know that there's a dark handsome dangerous man who is going to sweep a woman and seduce her and it's going to end up romantically um then you can play with that. You can play with the audience expectations, I think, uh, in, in, an interesting, in an interesting kind of way. And, you know, same, same with other elements of the Gothic. They, they, they're very meaty elements because they're very recognizable and they're very melodramatic. It's, it's all about the, uh, the emotions in Gothics. So they function as a little bit like Lego kits. You can take pieces from them and build other stuff. And what I was trying... To do was obviously play in this space in a way where, of course, I love I love original Gothic novels. But if you want an original Gothic novel, if you want to have the same exact experience as reading The Monk, you can go and read The Monk, right? But if you're here in this contemporary space, I'm going to have to do something a little bit different for you. 
so that you can enjoy it as a reader in the year 2020. And that's, you know, basically what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm creating an experience that hopefully harkens back to some of that old material that maybe would have been really enjoyable in, you know, in the 1800s and in, in the Dumarier days in the 1960s when there was a big Gothic paperback revival. But it's being informed by my contemporary, by contemporary literary perspective. And it's been informed also by the things that I find interesting and important. And that obviously the Brontes wouldn't have found interesting and important, such as issues of race and colonialism. So I'm bringing in my own, my own stuff into the mix. But hopefully it's, it's a fun dance. One of the things that happens with all of literature is that literature is just this ongoing conversation with itself. Every book is made out of other books. That's the dirty secret about literature. You know, We read stuff and then we are inspired and we continue going on. So this book was very much me looking back and finding inspiration. But of course, you're always also looking forward and at the time period that you're living in, because, you know, otherwise, like I said, you can just go and buy for, you know, 99 cents, the monk probably on Kindle and read the whole thing. And you don't have to read any contemporary literature. I was bringing in my love for past forms of literature with my current interest in what I see as the literary landscape in science fiction, fantasy and horror and my desire to express certain elements that had not been expressed in the literature previously, such as colonialism and using the figure of the other in a different way. Well, that, that feels like a beautifully unique place to, to leave the interview. Um, so all we have to do now is I like to fire four questions at each of my guests. And as I always ask, I would like you to answer these questions with your gut reaction, your first thought. It's kind of my little gateway into your your psyche. Um, nothing too tough, but I'll be interested to see what you think. So question one, what was your gateway to horror? Edgar Allan Poe was the first horror, horror writer that I read. And after him, H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. I think we can see traces of both of those in Mexican Gothic. Definitely. definitely. Second question, if you could recommend one book to the people listening to this podcast, what would it be and why? Stephen Graham Jones with The Only Good Indians. If you liked the classic horror of Stephen King of the 1980s, such as It or Peter Straub's Ghost Story, that kind of classic horror, definitely has those vibes, but with a twist. And it has a killer elk. I read that this summer, and I think the monster, the elk-headed woman, is one for the ages. I, uh, I really want to interview Stephen for the, for the program. That book is incredible. I was blown away by it. Third, what piece of advice would you give to a fledgling horror novelist? Start figuring out your financials now. I tell that to people and they stare at me and they think I'm being, I'm making fun of them. But no, it is like, start looking at your tax code and keeping your receipts. It will be very important. Even if you're not published yet, the fact that you are interested in pursuing this seriously means that you need to take it seriously. So start thinking about receipt, um, you know, yeah, keeping your receipts and your invoices and also about tax considerations in the future and all the kind of small business aspects that most of us don't think about. A writer really is a freelancer. If that is your full-time job, writer, 
you are a freelancer, so you have to start thinking like one and do it now rather than later. Well, that's a great piece of advice. I normally get people answer things about persistence and write every day, but that's a really practical piece of advice. Thank you. Yeah, persistence is good, but if you don't put away 30% of what you made at the end of the tax year, you're going to be crying. I can tell you, I've seen people that that has happened to. So yeah. Say no, everyone. And my last question and my favorite question to ask people, what truly scares you? Oh, I'm scared of almost everything. That's one of the funny things. I'm scared about babies that look at you weird. I'm scared about big dogs, um, scared about swimming and anything at all. I am a really very scared person. I guess the thing I'm scared about is the most is death. Uh, like I do think about that sometimes way too often, laying awake at nights and just staring at the ceiling and thinking, am I going to die in the next three minutes? I am, yeah, definitely a very phobic person. But on the other hand, I am blissfully unafraid of other things that most people would be afraid of. So like failure, I have no failure of that because I could be dead in the next three minutes. So on that note, let's just say thank you very much for talking to us. Um, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Massive congratulations for the book. It's well deserved. And I hope you stay very well with what's left of this crazy year. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, good luck to everybody listening. And yes, definitely keep your receipts. You heard it here, guys. Keep your receipts. Thanks, Sylvia. That was a great chat. Plenty of meat on the bone there. And you can say the same about Mexican Gothic itself, actually. It's a great summer read. It's full of style and substance, and it goes into some very weird places. If you're planning a late summer, early autumn break, I really do recommend taking it with you. My take on the Gothic is actually more forgiving than Sylvia's, to be honest. I think it can be romance as well as many other things. And, and Mexican Gothic is all of those things. But, but rest assured, it is very much a scary book, first and foremost. On a broader note, I feel like that conversation was a wake-up call for this show. This year, more than ever, we've all become aware of how important it is to widen representation and to promote diverse voices. Over on this liberal left artsy side of the culture, we're all giving ourselves a pat on the back. But just a cursory look at the upcoming horror writing available between now and the end of the year shows a microcosmic version of the problem at hand. I'm looking over the roster of guests coming on this show. And though I'm delighted to speak to each and every one of them, I have been constantly aware of the limited diversity, voices and points of view available in mainstream horror publishing. So I'll keep on looking for alternative points of view in horror. And I'd love to speak to Victor Laval, to Tanara Review, to Helen Oyemi. But please, if you have any suggestions for authors that can broaden the parameters of what horror is and what it does, drop me a line. You can reach me on Twitter at TalkScaredPod, or you can email directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. As ever, if you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to bumping the show up the list and making it easier to find. Plus, you know, tell some friends. Lastly, I'd like to give a shout out to Sarah and Tom Bigger. Thanks for your kind words and I'm glad that you like the show, Tom. Everyone else, have a good week. Take long walks and hot baths. Eat your mushrooms, pay your taxes, read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. 